Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 20th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. And the title of today's podcast is How to Save a Life by Screening for Intimate Partner Violence in the Emergency Department. And we don't have just one guest skeptic. No, we have two guest skeptics to cover this important topic. So our first guest skeptic is Dr. Noor Khatib. She is an emergency physician in Toronto working in community sites, Markham Stouffville Hospital and Lake Ridge Health. Dr. Khatib also works in remote northern communities in the Northwest Territories and Nunavut. She is currently the professional development and education lead at Lake Ridge Health and the lead preceptor for Lake Ridge Health Learners. Noor, welcome back to the SGEM. Thanks, Ken. Glad to be back. Well, I said back to the SGEM because you were the guest skeptic on SGEM number 282. It's all about the bays, about the bays in diagnosing PE. Can you remind the SGEM listeners the bottom line from that episode? Absolutely. It's reasonable to use the PEG-ED strategy to safely rule out PE in low-risk patients. Yes, it is reasonable. And our second guest skeptic is someone I've been trying to get on the show for years. So I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Carrie Sampsell. She is a staff emergency physician and medical director of the Sexual Assault and Partner Abuse Care Program at the Ottawa Hospital and an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa. She has been active in the field of forensic medicine and medical education. Carrie, finally, welcome to the SGEM. Thank you for having me. I am very honored to finally be here. Well, it is an SGEM Extra episode. The Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, or CAPE, put out a position statement on intimate partner violence, or IPV, on November 2nd, 2022. CAPE has several position statements, including one on homelessness, violence in the ED, gender equity, opioid use disorder, and other topics. We did an SGEM Extra episode covering the CAPE position statement on access to dental care. Carrie, did you hear that episode? Do you know what the CAPE position statement is on dental care? You betcha. CAPE believes that every Canadian should have affordable, timely, and equitable access to dental care. Well, we are going to be talking about intimate partner violence, so I'm going to give a trigger warning here. If you're listening to this podcast or if you're off reading the blog, there may be some things discussed about IPV that could be upsetting. The SGEM is a free open access program that's trying to cut the knowledge translation down to less than one year, and it's intended for clinicians providing care to emergency patients so they get the best care based on the best evidence. Some of the IPV material we're going to be talking about on the show could trigger some strong emotions. If you're feeling upset by the content, then please stop listening. There'll be resources listed at the end of the SGEM blog for those looking for assistance. All right, that's the trigger warning. Now let's get into the actual episode. And I like to start with the basics. So let's get in definition so we're all on the same page. Noor, can you give us a definition of IPV or intimate partner violence? Sure thing. 
IPV refers to any behavior within an intimate relationship that causes physical, psychological, or sexual harm to those in the relationship. This is often an issue of power and control and could be in a current or past relationship. Okay, so we've got the definition of IPV. Why did CAPE decide to put out a position statement on this topic? Well, IPV patients are being seen daily in our EDs, and CAPE saw the value in ensuring that this vulnerable trauma population was recognized and also received good care when they come to see us. All right, so we got a definition. We know why CAPE's involved, but how did the two of you decide to take on the lead for this issue on IPV? Well, Noor presented an award-winning grand rounds on IPV when she noted that CAPE didn't actually have a statement yet on this, despite IPV patients being seen most often in an eMERGE department setting. In my experience working in this field, I noticed that eMERGE docs were really comfortable caring for trauma patients, but were less so comfortable with this subset of trauma. So we decided to write a document to help both our colleagues across the country and the patients they're seeing. Well, how big of a problem is it? How prevalent is IPV? And what kind of impact does it have on those exposed to IPV? It's quite the problem, Ken. So in the World Health Organization, they estimate that the prevalence is one in three women worldwide, with no significant difference between continents. Women exposed to IPV are twice more likely to suffer from depression and alcohol use disorders, and 38% of all murders of women worldwide are IPV-related. I will repeat that. 38% of all murders of women worldwide are IPV-related. This is a significant issue. And unfortunately, it's a significant issue in Canada too. A few years back when I presented the Grand Rounds, the statistic was a woman is murdered every six days in Canada. And now, unfortunately, it's every 36 hours by her current or ex-partner. Those are pretty scary statistics. But it's not just women. We, we want to point this out. It's not just women who suffer from IPV, correct? Absolutely correct. So women is approximately one in three. Men, it's approximately one in eight. But the true rate for IPV in men is unknown, given low reporting for various complex reasons. Uh, populations who are vulnerable are Indigenous and LGBTQ plus populations. IPV truly does transcend economic status, gender, borders. It's an everybody problem. We're going through this global pandemic right now. Has COVID-19 had an impact on the prevalence of IPV? Unfortunately, it has. So the COVID-19 has actually worsened the prevalence of IPV, particularly due to things like shelter-at-home orders or people being asked to stay at home more often. There's re That's resulted in an increased calls to police as well as to community support agencies, as well as decreased recognized presentations in the emergency department. I did some research earlier in the pandemic and that of others has also found that stressors of the pandemic mirror the stressors that worsen IPV and that home actually can be a really unsafe place for those affected by IPV. Well, I like to think that the emergency department is that light in the house of medicine that's always on for anyone at any time for anything, hopefully without judgment. What role do you think the emergency department and its staff have in this issue of IPV? IPV is a form of trauma and we are trauma experts. 
And a 2008 study found that 44% of women murdered by their intimate partner had visited an emergency department in the year prior. And 93% of those victims visited specifically for IPV-related injuries. And ED physicians only identified 5% of those cases, with only 13% asking about IPV or domestic violence at all, despite the fact that 40% of them came with violent injuries. These patients are being seen in our EDs every day right now, but we aren't tuned to look for this like we are so many other disease entities. We are the port in the storm for patients seeking care or even escaping IPV, because like you said, we're always open. The porch light's always on. Yeah, I like to think of it as a lighthouse because then you can have all this stormy water around, but you can be that beacon of light, that beacon of hope that it's a safe place to come no matter what you have. But some listeners may have this image of the, quote, battered woman in their head. You know, the pictures that we routinely see, and it's usually of a woman that looks disheveled and has a black eye who is suffering from IPV. Can you help dispel that stereotype? You're right. The stereotypical quote-unquote battered woman is often the only image that comes to mind when thinking of intimate partner violence. But in fact, it does encompass things like stalking, threats to taking away children, workplace sabotage, blackmail. Additionally, it encompasses people visiting the eMERGE for the same presentation multiple times, chronic pain syndromes, mental health concerns, and substance use issues. These are highly associated with intimate partner violence. Also, don't forget, inter-partner violence does affect all races, socioeconomic classes, educational levels. So all of these reasons, it is not that typical, stereotypical, quote-unquote, battered women picture that we are trained to see maybe in the media or in movies. So let's pull back a bit from that one stereotypical image and focus in on Canada. Can you provide some statistics on IPV and do you think that the incidence is overestimated or do you think it's underestimated? It's vastly underestimated. When we think of IPV, we think that's so unCanadian and unkind. How could we possibly have this problem? Unfortunately, we do. Best estimates state that one in 10 survivors of violence seek care. Even with that, Statistics Canada identified that IPV accounted for one in four police reported crimes in 2011. Among these, ex-partners were involved about 30% of the time, and between 2009 and 2017, there was a total of over 22,000 incidents of police-reported same-sex intimate partner violence in Canada. That is, violence among same-sex spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, or individuals in other intimate partnerships. This represented approximately 3% of all police-reported incidents of intimate partner violence over this time period. There is an increased risk of homicide after separation which means that leaving is the riskiest action patients could take. You often hear people go, why doesn't he just leave that relationship? Or why doesn't she just leave? Leaving is truly the riskiest, scariest time and the time when there's increased risk of homicide. Patients very often seek refuge in our emergency departments during this transition period. A 2009 general social survey found 22% of victims report incidents to police. Thus, the IPV statistics discussed are significant underestimates. And like we had mentioned, a woman in Canada is murdered every 36 hours by her current or ex-intimate partner. So when I was reading some of the information that you sent me in advance, it got me to think, 
are we required to in Canada to report IPV? Because I didn't think we were, but I don't know what it's like in the rest of Canada. I only know what it's like in Ontario and that we're not required. But is that the same in the rest of Canada and the world? It is the same in the rest of Canada. So you cannot call the police without the express consent of the patient, even if you're really worried about their safety. The same things that we're allowed to break confidence for are the same things in intimate partner violence. So the only ways you're allowed to break confidentiality in cases is where children are in the home, even if they are not victims of the abuse themselves, elder abuse in a long-term care setting, or if you see someone with a gunshot wound. We're there for the survivor of the violence to help them with what they need at the time, even if it can be difficult for us as ED physicians to not have this necessarily be reported to the police. Around the world, there's different laws at place. Some places have adult protective services, so it really depends on where you're located. But in Canada, you cannot break confidentiality except for those three instances. All right. How about the economic impact of intimate partner violence? Estimating the economic impact of a social phenomenon naturally would help policymakers with resource allocation and program funding. A Justice Canada study in 2012 estimated that the cost of intimate partner violence in Canada was $7.4 billion. The study estimated that the cost of ED IPV-related visits were 30 times more costly than family practice visits, and that patients were three times more likely to go to the emergency department than their own family doctor for intimate partner violence-related health concerns. Now we think, why is that? Well, we're always open. You can come to the emergency department and no one will find out. It's relatively anonymous. But at at your family doctor's office, this might not be so anonymous. The abuser might also be a patient in that clinic. Or someone in the front desk might mention it next week to the abuser that, hey, I saw your husband last week or I saw your wife last week. So the ED is where most IPV patients seek refuge and medical care. And this is why we're hoping to equip Canadian emergency doctors with the knowledge of how to take care of this vulnerable population. Now, $7.4 billion sounds like a lot. In fact, it really is. It's the equivalent of the gross domestic product or GDP of the Bahamas, of an entire nation, and is more than what is spent on on the care of congestive heart failure patients in Canada. So clearly, this is having a significant impact on the Canadian population, but isn't getting the recognition it needs. Okay, so, you know, it's a big problem and it has a lot of negative economic impact. Why do you think the emergency department, though, is the right access point for helping these people who are experiencing intimate partner violence? Well, as I said before, it is a subset of trauma and we are the traumatologists. So that's one reason. And also the ED is even more commonly now being the only access point for patients into the healthcare system at all. We often see patients who don't regularly see a physician, don't have a family physician, or can't access them for some reason. IPV survivors come to the ED more often because they're coming at vulnerable times. And like we'd said before, we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And like Noor has just said, the ED has a modicum of anonymity. No one needs to know you're here, and we don't usually have a pre-existing relationship with a patient or their abuser, so we can just treat them at that visit, at that time. Well, CAPE did come out with four recommendations, and we haven't talked specifically about their position statement. 
Well, I would have preferred five, my favorite number, but okay. Let's run through Cape's four recommendations. The first one may be a little controversial, and that is that CAPE recommends universal screening for IPV to be performed in the emergency department. Taking all the evidence into account, screening is low cost, low risk, safe, and can detect a high prevalence of previously undetected abuse in the emergency department where patients are presenting for care. Incorporating screening into medical care requires training of staff on what questions to ask and what local resources are available if someone screens positive. Well, being a skeptic, I did look into the evidence that was used to support that position statement, and that included a 2013 Annals of Emergency Medicine Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And they said, quote, screening women for intimate partner violence appears beneficial, accurate, and safe. However, the optimal screening setting, instrument, or intervention have not been established, end of quote. That was 2013. Jump forward a couple of years to the Cochrane Systematic Review in 2015. They said, quote, while screening increases identification, there is insufficient evidence to justify screening in healthcare settings, end of quote. And then skip forward three more years and you get to the United States Preventative Service Task Force in 2018, and it gives a B recommendation for screening. Quote, clinicians screen for intimate partner violence, IPV, in women of reproductive age and provide or refer women who screen positive to ongoing support services, end of quote. So do you think that the evidence is strong enough for IPV screening in the emergency department? We reviewed these same studies when crafting the position statement and came to the same conclusions as many other medical societies who recommend screening. Look, it's low cost, low risk, safe. There's high prevalence of this undetected abuse. And studies show that screening works, as in we can detect IPV. But there is no evidence, there's no study out there about intervention after, um, after screening for IPV. Well, that leads into the second recommendation, and that is that the patient get appropriate medical care. That seems obvious, but can you expand on what that means for appropriate care for somebody who's suffering from IPV? Injuries should be assessed and treated in the usual manner. We tend to get worried when IPV is in play as to what to do, um, when do we know how to evaluate which patients. Signs of IPV are like signs of child abuse. This is the same science that we learned in medical school and that we can rhyme off from medical school. We're all familiar with them. And adult, and adult injuries behave in similar manners. Medical care always comes before any forensic considerations. Perform a physical exam as guided by the clinical interview. A full head-to-toe exam is not necessary and can be traumatic for patients, though. Using a trauma-informed approach to your examination is ideal. This consists of informing the patient of what you will be doing for each step of your exam, never approaching a patient from behind, and allowing the patient full control to halt the examination at any time. Provide analgesia and a, te- and a tetanus update as per the usual guidelines. Pursue imaging as you would for any other accidental trauma mechanism. Patients presenting with a possible strangulation injury need evaluation for any signs of significant force, such as loss of consciousness, vascular injury signs, neurological injury, or changes in phonation that may indicate an airway injury. Imaging should be a CT angiogram of the head and neck. If the patient is stable, this patient can be imaged when a safe transfer can be arranged. So the third recommendation 
is for patients to be referred to a specialized care center. So specialized care services for IPV patients are a team who provide private and confidential trauma-sensitive medical care to any person who's experienced sexual or intimate partner violence in their region. The patients must consent to the care from the, from the specialized team, and there's no assumption of implied or emergency consent in these cases. So you do have to ask if it's okay for them to see it. These exams take time, and that is at a premium in a busy emergency department. So leaving the detailed forensic and uh, medical exams to people who are experts in this area is the best way forward. Hospitals in most provinces have a memorandum of understanding with specialized sexual assault and domestic violence treatment centers. In Ontario, the locations can be found at the sadvtreatmentcenters.ca under the Get Help box. There's also an International Association of Forensic Nurses that has locations around the world as well as across Canada. Additionally, hospital social work services can act as an expert consultant for managing the complex social and safety side of the aspects of patient care. All of these services are recommended to be consulted for these patients should they consent to it, as their care encompasses a multitude of social, forensic, psychological, and safety aspects that are really tricky to manage in a busy ED. Well, one of the concerns I have with this third recommendation is its implementation in rural communities. There are large swaths of Northern Ontario with limited access to healthcare, and individuals suffering from IPV may not be able to access domestic violent treatment centers because of childcare, work issues, transportation issues that are faced in rural settings. Are there any thoughts about how this can be safely de- delivered virtually? Absolutely. And this was put into as forethought for the Ontario Network of Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Treatment Centers, recognizing those limitations. So those rural and northern communities are affiliated with specialized treatment centers as well, and they are familiar with their logistical and geographical challenges. And they have the option of delivery of care virtually. All you need to do is contact the program that's affiliated with your location and you can work it together to care for the patient, whether that's virtually or by transfer. We will work with people to ensure the patient gets the care that they need in the setting that they're in. The fourth and final CAPE recommendation is to focus in on documentation. Once an emergency doctor has identified a case of intimate partner violence, the assumption should be that the medical records may be summoned to court and documentation of the events should be clear and legible to everyone. With just small adjustments to medical charts, they can be much more accurate and useful in court. Here are some pointers and documentation for your charting. Write legibly. Use words like patient states or reports. Do not use words like claims and alleges. These are legal jargon that should not be in our charts. Avoid commenting on suspected age of injuries. Remain factual. Have the sexual assault team take photos. And include intimate partner violence in the final diagnosis if the injuries were the reason for the visit. This helps with funding for the IPV and sexual assault programs that we rely on in caring for these patients. Those were the four recommendations put out by CAPE. So I reached out to both of you and challenged you and said, hey, can you come up with a fifth, a fifth recommendation just for the SGEM? Absolutely. So we know five is your favorite number. So here is your bonus 
fifth SGEM recommendation on privacy. So you can imagine, and as Noor has said before, that leaving or seeking care can be the most risky time for someone who's experiencing IPV. So keeping someone safe and anonymous in your ED is important, but it's also something that's possible. So first of all, having the patient de-identified on your EMR or have the record locked, depending on which EMR you have, keeps them from being seen on a tracking whiteboard, as well as acts as a visual reminder for those in the circle of care that this is a high-risk safety patient. Secondly, it also helps to have a script for people who are fielding phone calls or directing visitors to say when there is a lock chart so that they don't have to improvise on the spot. Yeah, and I think that privacy one is a great one to come up with. And and I think it might be even more important in rural areas because in small communities, there is, you know, people know each other. And so to try your best to keep those people anonymous and respect their privacy, I think is, that's a great fifth one. Thanks. Well, what did CAPE say at the end for their conclusion? And what are the next steps for intimate partner violence? Intimate partner violence is prevalent worldwide and Canada is no exception. The emergency department is where these patients commonly seek care. Screening itself works and the idea that there is no evidence for screening is based on literature that never studied intervention. IPV-related injuries should be treated the same as any other traumatic injury and chronic pain, substance use, or mental health complaints may be clues to intimate partner violence. Referral to a specialized care center will ensure the complex needs of intimate partner violence patients are met. You will see these patients, and hopefully this guideline will make you more comfortable in doing so. All right, so that covers the four plus the bonus fifth recommendation for the SGEM. I want to open the floor. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this topic? I'd like to say that you can save a life on your next shift, not because of a flashy procedure, but by recognizing and helping your IPV patient. Well, I like that. Yeah. You could save a life on your next shift. Well, thanks, Noor, for coming on the SGEM. Thank you, Ken. You know, November is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We, as emergency doctors, are at the forefront of IPV care, and we appreciate you spreading knowledge on this important topic. And thanks to you as well, Carrie. Thank you for shining a light on this important topic. We appreciate all that you do for Emerge Docs and Canadians. Well, the SGEM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that KT window down, that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence. Since I have two guest skeptics, I'm going to divide up the SGEM tagline and ask the two of you to read it. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you've heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. I say-